And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all his, this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Caius. Casey, Caius. So David and Goliath, a story that all of us know, we've heard. If you have no church background, you've heard a reference to David and Goliath. It's probably the most famous story that the Bible brings us outside of this Nazarene man who was put on a cross. David and Goliath, we know the story. It's a great story. It's everything you want in an epic story. It's got good. It's got evil. It's got clear good, clear evil, this battle between these two people, David and Goliath. It reminds me of Top Gun. I saw Top Gun, great movie, and I hear all these people say, man, what made that movie so great? And I think it's simplified. So, so many films these days, the good guy, the bad guy, everything's so muddied and great. It's like the bad guy's got some good qualities and the good guy has all these sort of evil qualities. It's like all, Top Gun was like old school, good guy, Americans in a plane, bad guy, over there, we took him down. And David and Goliath brings us into a story like that, good versus evil. Now, here's what I've just been praying about. David and Goliath is a bigger story than just about David and Goliath. You could teach this to a kid, and they'll love it. You could teach this in a church, and it's a great story. It's got inspirational, motivational tips to leave with. But if you leave this story, and all you know is 1 Samuel 17, you've missed the point, because David and Goliath sits in the center of a bigger story 
that's been unfolding from the beginning of time. So what I want to do is just remind you of good and evil, how we Christians, followers of Jesus, see good and evil. Because everyone looks at this world and says, there's something not right. Everyone agrees on that. Whether you have no God desire in you whatsoever, or you're the most devout Christian, you've been walking with Jesus a hundred years. We all look out and say, something is not right with this world. Here's what very few people, as we go out, agree on. Well, what is evil, and where did it come from? Uh, then you start to get, well, I, you call that evil. I don't, that's not evil. Well, what is good? What is evil? Where did it start? How's it going to get fixed? That's what this book is telling us. It's God coming down to fix the problem of evil that we created. Genesis 1 and 2 is the beginning of the Bible. It is how God spoke into creation all that is. And he looks out and he says, that is good. That is good. That is good. That is good. And then the pinnacle of his creation is a man and a woman named Adam and Eve. And he looks at them and he says, that's very good. That's the center of my creational masterpiece that I am painting. The main character in the story that I'm writing, Adam and Eve. Now just do me this one solid, Adam and Eve. Listen to me. And right away in the story, they say, I hear you, but I'm going to do what I want. And they choose to disobey God. And in that moment, the universe is fractured. So Christians have the answer to the origin of evil. It's sin that started in a garden in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve, our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, chose to rebel against their creator, their good and loving and perfect creator. And the world is fractured. The earth is fractured. You now have tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes. Our relationship with God is severed. Adam and Eve then run and hide from God. And now all of us are born into this world hiding from God by nature. My kids naturally have a shameful bent to them. And it's not because they're Watts and that's a Watt thing. That's a human thing. We all have this shameful disposition. And then there's strife between Adam and Eve. They immediately get in a fight. And now every human relationship, no matter how good, how perfectly you try to align the pieces between a man and a woman or a father and a daughter, you bring them together and there will be strife because sin entered the world. And then more than that, our relationship with ourself is broken. Everything is broken. Now, what does God do? In the very beginning of his story, he whispers in, here's the solution. This is Genesis 3.15, and I'll show you how it makes sense in this story. This is God speaking to the serpent, the snake who slithered on the ground and spoke distrust into Adam and Eve's heart, which led to all that is bad in this world. He says this to that serpent, between, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, her being Eve. He shall bruise your head. The seed of Eve, somebody born of Eve, will bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first whisper of the gospel, which means good news, which means how is God going to deal with evil in this world? The seed of Eve is going to punish the serpent once and for all. How does that fit with David and Goliath? David and Goliath is just another story that reflects and points us towards the fulfillment of that verse, Genesis 3.15. So if you're a note taker, I'm breaking this story up into three chapters. David and Goliath, I'm going to look at the serpent, I'm going to look at the seed, 
And I'm going to look at the stones. The serpent, the seed, and the stones. So that's where we are going today. Let's dive in and get after the serpent, the seed, and the stones. So the serpent, here's my first chapter of this story as I retell the story of David and Goliath. The serpent is growing. The snake of Genesis 3 doesn't stay a snake. He grows and he morphs and he shows up in this story. Let's just go there. Chapter 17, verse 1 through 3, I want to set the stage for this very famous story and remind us of where these battle lines are being drawn. It says this, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soka, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soka and Ezekah and Ephes Damim. And Saul, King Saul, and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Pause right there. What is going on right now? The Philistines and the Israelites, the Jews, are standing on opposite sides of a valley waiting to do battle. Where are they standing? They're on the western edge of Israel. What is, hap- what is God painting here? Israel once had no land. They were slaves in Egypt. And God says, I'm going to give you a land. Look it. It's right here. I'm going to send you into this land. In the book of Judges, if you go back, you don't need to go there, is God sending his people into this land to drive out all those that don't worship Yahweh. Clear out this place, anyone who does not worship the one true God. And they go in and they do a halfway decent job. They halfway obey, which in God's economy is 100% disobedience. And now fast forward, they're in the land, and these Philistines are a constant reminder that they did not do what God asked. And it's a constant reminder for us that we live in this world where there is a thorn in our flesh that will not go away until he returns once and for all. And the Jews are here in this land, and they're standing up doing battle with the Philistines. They started in the east. They kind of drove people all the way to the west. As far as you cross Israel, they still have this thorn in the flesh, namely the Philistines. The serpent of Genesis 3 is still alive and active among the people of God. And in this story, the Philistines are the personification of the reality of evil in their world. But more than that, they've got a very scary enemy here. I want to read and just introduce us once again to the person of Goliath. This is Goliath of David and Goliath. Verse 4 down through verse 10. Again, they're all standing on both sides. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against you, against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Think Egypt 2.0. Verse 10, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight 
together. The serpent is growing. Just the battle of David and Goliath, the famous part where we know where he beats him with a slingshot, happens 50 verses into this story. The author of this story wants us to build up and to enter into the anticipation of what would be this very quick little battle. And a lot of the anticipation has its focus on this person named Goliath of Gath. So he spends a lot of ink describing evil in the person of Goliath. I just want to walk through a few. Here's the first verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath. What is a champion? That's a weird word to throw in there. Champion in this context simply means the man who stands in between. You got Israel, the Philistines, and we've got the champion, the one brave enough, big enough, bold enough to stand in between to challenge those to step forward. The champion has stepped forward. Well, let's describe him. The rest of that verse says this, whose height was six cubits and a span. So none of us know what cubits are unless we're Jewish. Maybe then you don't even know. Nine feet, nine inches tall is the description of Goliath. Some early manuscripts, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some say it comes out as six feet, nine inches. So there's a little bit. Either way, he's tall. I mean, he's an NBA power forward or he's the tallest man ever. He's a tall, tall man. Nine feet, nine inches tall. I Googled, who's the tallest guy to ever live? And this is the world record that we know. A guy named William Roblo from Chicago. He only lived about 22 years of life, but he is 8 feet 11 inches tall. And it says Goliath is 9 feet 9 inches tall. So looking down on this man by almost a foot. And he steps out. Goliath, the Philistine, the serpent, seems to be growing. But it's not just his height that we want to look at. Verse 5, let's read that. The author then says, look what he's wearing. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. So 5,000 shekels, again, unless you're an expert in ancient literature, this is about 130 pounds of armor over him. So this is that hike or hunt. I hunt with a backpack. It's like 20 pounds, and I'm ready every time I stop to take it off. He has 130 pounds on him. And written in there, he's armed with a coat of mail. Literally, he's armed with a coat of scales. So a giant, nine feet, nine inches tall, comes out wearing snake-like armor to stand before the people of God looking down on them, ready to destroy them. The serpent seems to be growing. And the author wants us to look at him and look at him and see the size of evil now that faces his people, Israel. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, And the bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. I mean, he's just decked out. Verse 7, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield barrel went before him. So even the tip of his spear, so the thing he would throw, the tip of it was about 16 pounds. So like a 15-pound weight is at the end of the thing that he's just going to chuck easily. Again, all these details are here because we want to look and see the evil one who is standing before the people of God. Some uh, commentators and people that have researched think he had about 700 pounds worth of gear on him. So a nine foot, nine inch tall man 
carrying 700 pounds of gear, the champion, the one standing in between Israel and Philistine. This is who Goliath is. Verse 8, let's keep reading. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Verse 10, And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. It started as a snake not too long ago. And now Israel's facing a dragon-like man who's calling them out, ready to enslave them once again and take them back to the life that they thought they had left behind. Evil is growing, and it's still here. Now what is going on with the leader that the people asked for to fix their life and make everything better. The president that's going to fix America once in a while. What's that guy doing? Let's read verse 11 and just get a picture of Saul as the giant stands before. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Do you remember how Saul is described? Always his height. Head and shoulders, head and shoulders, head and shoulders above the rest. He's the tallest Israelite there is. And now a nine foot nine inch giant comes and Saul is terrified, dismayed, greatly afraid. Like I don't know what's the most scary situation, the most unnerving situation, but like picture that. Whether it's a health diagnosis, whether it's something with your kids, whether it's actually something in your life that you face. And they are facing evil and all that is wrong with this world and they are scared to death even the one that they chose that they thought would fix their problem this is goliath now let's keep reading verse 12 and just get a sense of what the other people are doing down to verse 23 now david was the son of an epaphrite of bethlehem and judah named jesse who had eight sons in the days of saul the man was already old talking about jesse in advance in years the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, we saw him last week, the firstborn, next to him Abinadad, and the third Shema. David was the youngest, the three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistines came forward and took a stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring them some token. Verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle and shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage. Pause right there. Saul, the first time we see him, hey, he's the king. He's hiding in the baggage. The first time we see David near a battlefield, he leaves the baggage and sprints to the line to do battle. 
Verse 23, and as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the one in between, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And now little David is there to hear them. The serpent is growing. Just the author wants us to sit in this space. For 40 days, every morning and every afternoon, the giant comes out and threatens and mocks and belittles the people of God and all of their finest soldiers they have. And then he goes to bed and the next day he wakes up and he does it all over again for 40 days. Like I, what do you have to wait for 40 days for something bad in your life to resolve? Like waiting is terrible, whether it's health news, like I'll know on Tuesday. Like for my wife and I and a lot of our friends and people in this church, it's, you know, wanting to have a kid. And based off how God set it up, it's a month wait. And you hear a no, and then you got to wait another 30 days, and then a no. The people of God are waiting day after day, and there is no solution. There is no hope. There's just a giant who seems to be mocking the people of God. And Saul is sitting there afraid. Now, what is Saul going to do? Saul does what most cowardly kings do. How do I get someone else to fix this problem for me? Let's read verse 24 and 25. Now all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. Duh. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free. In Israel, pause right there. Saul's solution, I will offer my daughter all the riches you want and a tax-free existence in my kingdom. Like, dudes don't need much to do stupid stuff. My sons will jump off the roof for a lollipop. And you get older, and that doesn't change a ton. Like, you'll give me what? 20 bucks? Okay, I will drive my car into that thing. Done. And Saul says, I will give you a fine spouse, all the money you could ever imagine, and a tax. Everything you want for a good life in Israel is yours if you go defeat that man. And there is crickets. Why? Because the serpent is huge and scary. And God wants us to see, yeah, that's what happens when you open the door to sin in this world is that's what we're facing. The serpent has grown and there was no one around to fix this problem. Except there's this little shepherd boy who just heard Goliath's threat for the first time. And now David, who I'm going to call the seed of Eve, enters into this battle and takes us to our second chapter in this story. The seed now is forming. Let's read verse 26. And just see how David enters the scene. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Stop right there. Those are the first words. Pay attention in Hebrew literature, the Old Testament, to people's first words. David didn't talk last week. He was just a cute little boy with pretty cheeks and pretty eyes who showed up. This holy man anoints him. Spirit comes on him, and then he goes back out to the field, and then he sort of plays music for the king. But he doesn't say anything. 
the first words we hear of King David, who is a pillar of the Old Testament and a key domino that must be a part of the dominoes that fall for the story of God to unfold the way he wants it to unfold. And his first words are, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach? I just love that. Because as Genesis 3.15 plays out, there's going to be a battle between your seed serpent and the seed of woman. He's going to bruise your head but you're going to bruise his heel. What is that seed going to look like? What is the promise of Eve's womb going to look like? And now King David steps in as a Messiah type pointing to the greater Messiah. And the first words out of his mouth are what every boy man thinks. What do I get? Wait, wait a second. His good looking daughter? Yeah. And money and tax free life. David does not show up with this lofty, holier-than-thou language proclaiming he shows up and he's like, so I get what? Just for taking down that guy? It's a picture of like the seed of Eve, the seed that is forming is going to be very earthy. The New Testament word is incarnation. He's going to be of the earth and of Adam and of Eve. He's going to be like us in every way except for one. He's going to look just like us. But then the second thing David says is telling on just what's in his heart and why God uses him for this mighty task. The second thing he says is, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's the first person to speak God's name into the situation. It's a very man-centered battle. It scared Israel, it's puffed up Philistines, puffed up Goliath, and they're just staring at each other, and Israel knows they can't defeat. No one has called on Yahweh. No one has brought him up. Israel, the chosen people of God, have not once said anything about Yahweh or the Lord. And then this little boy, 12 years old, 13 years old, 14 years old, that guy is defying my God? Oh, no. That's not happened. The king has arrived. The seed of Genesis 3 is forming. He's going to be of this earth. He's going to be jealous for God's glory in a way unlike his brothers around him. And he's going to do battle like Israel has not seen someone do battle up to this point. The seed of Eve that was promised many, many years prior to this is forming right before our very eyes and we get to see him. Now what's going to happen? Let's keep reading. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to these men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down just to see that battle. Stop right there. That is classic. Big brother, little brother. The big brother can't stand the little brother, and the big brother can't assume any good motives or intentions on his little brother. You little turd, you're just here to watch a battle. Get back to work with your few sheep. Get your little behind back out of here. Leave it to us, soldiers, doing the work of standing here on this valley, watching the giant yell at us. (laughs) Day after day. Jesus says it like this. A prophet is not without honor, except for in his hometown and among those closest to him. What's the seed that is going to form, that is going to be the centerpiece of the gospel. It's going to be somebody that does not receive the honor he deserves, especially amongst those closest to him. And Eliab says, get your butt out of here. How does David respond? Like a typical 
eighth-born little brother. And David said, what have I done now? I just, was it not just a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him as before. What did I do? I didn't do anything. Do I really get a wife? <laughs> and how much money? Leave me alone. Which, which daughter of his? Okay. The seed is forming. This is beautiful. We're watching it happen. Now we get to watch him show us what faithfulness and what faith looks like. I want to read verse 31 down through verse 37 together. David, the king who was anointed last time we gathered, is here before our very eyes, and we get to watch David. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. So now Saul hears, oh, some guy thinks he can do this. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul's looking down on David. Obviously, Saul's the tallest. And Saul said to David, you were not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you were but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, struck him, and killed him. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions, plural, and bears, plural. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. That's beautiful. And I don't want to miss the simplicity in this story. What do we see in David? What does faith look like for David? Because here's a problem in our sort of church uh, lane we run in is you may not what are, there's different lanes yeah denominations or whatever you want to call it redemption is this church that really thinks the bible is important it's the word of god and it's of utmost value however our desire to have good doctrine good theology and take the bible serious we can often lose the experiential nature of what faith is simply a relationship with the living god as david would say david does not spout out theological hoopla he simply says he's the first person to speak. He speaks God's name, the living God, the Lord. What is faith? It's knowing God personally. But then more than that, what is faith? There's a personal faith where you know God intimately and personally. But then there's also experiential faith. I've done this before. I've been in the field with God as my only help. And he's delivered me from bears and lions. Like I don't, I'd rather fight a man no matter how tall, than a bear. And David says, I've fought a few bears, and God's been with me. And i fought a few lions, and God's been with me. Like great movie, The Remnant, Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio, is the only movie I've seen where a man has to fight a bear, and it does not end well for him. And David's like, I've been in that world a few times. So what is faith for David? It's I know God, the living God. The Lord, Yahweh, and he's been with me up to this point, and he will be with me even more as I step forward. Do you have that kind of faith? Not do you have the right theological answers to the theological questions that religious people are asking. When you leave here, do you personally, 
intimately know God, the creator of the universe, who is still living, is as living today as he was for David. The living God, do you know him? That's faith. And then as you walk and have experienced life, are there moments you can look back to and say, he's been with me through a lot worse than this. This is terrible. But he's been faithful. The Lord has delivered me, and he will continue to deliver. Do you have that kind of faith? And some of you are like, ah. The answer is not anxiety and go solve the solution. It's just confess. Romans says this. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. That's it. Call him by his name. He's the Lord. Believe it in your heart, and you will be saved. David had that experience. He had real faith, not just words of faith, actions of faith. James says faith without works is dead. And we watch the seed forming before us, and he has the words, but he also has the faith. And we get to see David now on display. Now, how does David do battle? Our final chapter of this story, he uses some stones. Last chapter is the stones are stacking. Before we get there, verse 38 through 40, Something we all have to walk through is, yeah, but there's other options to solve all these problems before me. And David is presented with a pretty good option. Verse 38. So Saul's like, all right, you're going. And Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. He clothed him with a coat of scales, just like the evil one he's going to do battle with. There's a way to solve problems using the things of this world. And there's a way God wants us to do this. And Saul is placing on David the same that the enemy has before him. And David strapped out his sword over his arm and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his hand, staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistines. I love it. The seed is here. I don't want what you're taking to this battle, Saul. He picks up five little stones and puts them in his pouch. He says, this is all I need. God's been faithful with far less. I'll take this. And he puts it in his pouch and he's ready to go to battle. What battle? Genesis 3 would say this. You will put enmity, just a reminder between you and the woman in between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. The battle is about to begin. The people of God face their greatest enemy and the solution is this boy who just put some rocks in his pockets. Now verse 41. Now these are guys involved, so just so you know, there's still some trash talk that has to happen. So for like the next seven verses, they still don't get to it. It's like the high school boy, all the teachers in here, it's like the boys who never get to fight and they just... I'm going to get you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. So that's what's happening here. Verse 41. And the Philistines moved forward and came to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. This cute little boy. Verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Remember, in front of everyone. David's brothers are watching this. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Goliath, the serpent, is now a giant, a dragon. And David, the seed of Eve, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Jacob, who became Israel, the seed of Judah, who the Messiah was going to come from, is now here. And he has five rocks in his pocket as he faces the giant that everyone else is too afraid to step into the ring with. And now how does this battle go down? Like I told you, it's a quick battle. The trash talk is over, verse 48. Ding, 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 let the fight begin. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. I love that language. Sprinted to meet him in the center of the ring. Verse 49. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. He's not done yet. There was no sword in the hand of David. But David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. That's the story of David and Goliath, which will always be an amazing story. The little guy beat the big guy. But I don't want us just to leave here with inspiration to go face whatever Goliath you have right now. This is a battle between the seed of Eve and the serpent. And we watch the seed right before Varius. So I want to just remind us of two things before we close our time. As we read the story of David and Goliath, we have to remember Jesus. The battle started in a garden. The serpent on the ground looking up deceiving Adam and Eve. Fast forward, the battle is now between Israel and the Philistines and Goliath the giant taller than all is looking down, promising destruction to the people of God. But the problem is bigger than Goliath even. The problem is Satan is real and he's active and sin is real and it's insidious and it's parasitic and it's cancerous and it's everywhere. It's in me, it's in you, it's everywhere. Sin is in this world. And because of sin, death now reigns ultimately. So we don't need a giant to be taken down. We need something more. We need Satan, sin, and death to be defeated. So when we read Genesis 3.15 about the seed of Eve that's going to crush the head of the serpent, whatever that means. What are they talking about? In David, we get a very black and white 2D picture of half of the gospel. We see David defeat evil, but nothing happens to David in this story. Part of the promise of Genesis 3.15 is you will bruise his head, but he's going to bruise your heel, and David walks away from this without any scratches. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God must put on flesh and come down to earth and leave this world scathed, bruised. We come to find out in the New Testament, crucified. 
Saul had weapons and armory and 700 pounds of gear. David had five stones. Jesus Christ, our Savior, had none of that. He did not pick up a sword. He did not pick up a weapon. His weapon was love. And he went to a cross. And he was killed by the people he created. And one of his best friends, Peter, who wrote part of the New Testament, says this about his Savior. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He suffered, he did not threaten back, but he kept entrusting himself to him, his Father, who judges justly. And he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on a tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. By the death of Goliath, we are inspired, but we are not healed. By the death of Jesus Christ, we are healed. And that is the only way we fix the problems in this world. Satan, sin, and death. You go look for a solution and you will find nothing. You find it here in the scriptures. Jesus Christ, by his wounds, we are healed. Do not leave here and not know that the story of David and Goliath is about Jesus Christ, even if you don't trust him yet. It's about Jesus, the ultimate warrior who did not pick up a stone but took up a cross. But more than that, I want us to leave here a little more courageous. I don't, second thing is I don't want to miss David. Jesus is the best story. The gospel is the best story. But the story of David is a great story. It's a story about what faith looks like. You know God personally. I know Jesus Christ. Why? Because he came after me when I was a sinful 18-year-old kid and he grabbed me and he's held on to me ever since. I know Christ. Some of you know Christ. That's faith. And more than that, you now walk with him and you have moments in your life you can look back to and say, he's been faithful. He's been faithful. He's been faithful. Just like David. But in this story, here's what I love about David. There is a stone that he took out of the head of Goliath and probably put back in his pocket. And then he went about his life. And the next time he had something to face, he didn't just have stories of bears and lions. He had the stone of remembrance of what God did with Goliath that no one saw coming. That is what faith looks like, is this world is scary. If you don't think it is, you've got your head in the sand, or if you've got too much money, then you know what to do with, because you're comfortable in a way that's not reality. But it's scary, and death is everywhere, and sin is everywhere, and corruption, and disruption, it's everywhere. And we as Christians are not called to sit in our houses and just be scared. We're called to walk out into our homes, and lead our families, and into our neighborhoods, and love our neighbors into Jesus, and into our jobs, and our vocations, and love this city as best we can. How do we do that? We pick up stones, and we say, God, this is scary, but you will deliver. David says it this way, the battle is the Lord's. He will give the victory. Don't miss David. Some of us need more courage. All of us need more courage. Some of us need very specific moments of courage, and we see it in David. We stand on the foundation of Jesus and the gospel, but we want to walk forward by faith like David. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.